Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guest today is Carrie Smith. Carrie is the founder of Big Ass Fans, which in less than two decades, he took the company from zero to 250 million in revenue without the help of investors. Following the sale of Big Ass Fans, Kerry started Unorthodox Ventures, where he partners with extraordinary founders, providing capital and expertise to build companies faster. Their portfolio includes FitJoy, GoFish, and Lumen. This was a great conversation where we chat about Kerry's transition from founder to investor and what has helped influence his decision-making process when he looks at investments. Without further ado, here's Kerry. Carrie, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Great, Mike. How are you? I'm doing really well. Doing really well. Thank you. So let's start from the very beginning. What was your attraction to entrepreneurship? You know, I don't know that I would categorize it as an attraction. It reminds me sort of uh, like voting in a presidential, actually any election. It's not so much that you get what you want. It's that you avoid what you don't want. When I got out of school, I went to work in various places uh, for large companies and it simply was not attractive in the long term. And so I had to do something else I had to and that's that's where I went and I had to start a business and that's what I did. No, that's cool. And so I guess what was the insight that led you to founding? I know you've started several businesses along the way and, and happy to talk about more of that, but would love to also just speak about what was the insight that led you to founding Big Ass Fans? Well, one of the first companies I started when I quit working in the corporate world turned out to be an absolute failure. But unfortunately, it took me a number of years to recognize that. But one of the good things that came of it over this period of 12 years, I was selling a concept in the system to industrial plant owners, distribution center operators, and it had to do with keeping their employees cool and comfortable because are cooler, I should say, or more comfortable. Because in those situations, it's very expensive to air condition, not just to, to install the air condition and you're talking about, you know, hundreds, thousands of tons of air conditioning, but to actually operate it. And though selling the uh, product that we were manufacturing at the time, which was a roof cooling system, which I hope you don't ask me to go into because it's not a minor embarrassment, it's a major embarrassment. It taught me the people that I, I learned an awful lot about manufacturing plants, large industrial facilities. It also taught me what the individual's who the people, who the individuals were that were actually running the plant on the floor and what they were looking for. And once I realized that the original product was not going to work, and as I say, I'm a slow learner, so it took me many years, I recognized that I needed something that worked within the facility itself and a, a big fan uh, was something that fit the bill. And I knew who these people were that I could sell the fan to. And I knew what their concerns were and I knew what their constraints were in terms of budgeting and and access to money. And so it was... I guess if I didn't do the fans, I would have had to come up with something else that 
related to those people. And it turned out that a relatively, or actually a deep knowledge of that, of their problems as relates keeping their workers comfortable, which helps in terms of productivity and various other things, labor relations, that uh, that the fans fit the bill and, and it was like a no-brainer. So No, that makes sense. Well, I mean, what I appreciate in that first business you started, it seems like in terms of the amount of information you learned and then eventually it seems like almost pivoted to really understand that there was a need with fans and turning that into a business. So that's really, really cool and also very creative. So why did you decide to become an investor? Well, after we sold the uh, fan business, the biggest fans business, I knew that, and, and quite honestly, I think that I could have kept the fan business and become an investor, but I simply did not understand the market. I didn't understand what the problems in the market, in the in investment and in the funding market were. And I I think that one thing, just to go back to the knowledge of the industrial facilities, I think it's important when somebody is looking at a business or looking at a business to start, that they think about what they've done, that they have a very deep knowledge of, because it's very difficult. I mean, if I if I went out and, and said, oh, I, you know, after I sold a company that what I really want to do is open a, gosh, a fast food restaurant chain or something of that, I know absolutely nothing about, absolutely nothing. And I think that if you start at zero, your knowledge, and if the company that you're looking to invest in, if your potential partners have very, very limited knowledge of the market in which they want to, uh, you know, engage, it's a problem. And so I think that when I started in the investment side of it, I really didn't know much about it. And we started right after we sold, I mean, right after we sold the fan company, because it seemed attractive. It seemed as if talking to people that were, I don't know, optimistic, and excited about what they were doing and that had new ideas that they were approaching markets and concepts in a different way, that that seems exciting. And in fact, it is. But I think that since we started, just like with the fans and the other business, that I pivoted, we, we changed so much from what we thought when we began, because I thought in, initially that we would invest in companies that what the important aspect of the company was their access to markets, not capital markets, but but simply supply chains and distribution channels and that sort of thing. In fact, over the last three years, it's pivoted into investing based more on the individuals and their understanding of business and their curiosity, I suppose. But I would have to say that now more than when we began, that we pay, we underwrite the individuals and their motivations and when they start a business. So why did I go into investment? Because it's interesting. But again, I didn't know anything about it when I started and we pivoted since then. And it's been very interesting, actually the whole thing. No, that's really helpful. And I also thank you for sharing about how even when you thought about investing from the very beginning, you had this idea that you wanted to invest in companies or folks that maybe had access to supply chains and really had a knowledge, but you almost pivot at thinking in terms of what you actually invest in, where it's actually focused much more on the individual and their motives. Talk to me a little bit about on the investing side of things. What do you look for in terms of founders? I think uh, what's important is 
things. One, that they have a plan. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people, you would imagine, I think, that most people that were looking for uh, investment uh, would uh, would have a fairly well thought out plan for how they were going to spend the money, why they needed the money, what they were going to do with it. It's amazing to me how few companies, startup companies, and, and I won't say just startup companies, but companies that have been in business for several years that are still small, how little planning they actually do. And that to me is a, an indicator that people aren't willing and aren't able to put the time in to build a reasonably detailed business plan. They're not good partners. So that's one of the things that I would, I would suggest. The other thing is, I think it makes a difference in terms of how creative and how well these people and how interested they are in learning something. If, if when we come up against somebody that just like absolutely knows every goddamn thing there is to know, or that's what they imagine, that's somebody you're not going to be able to work with because those people typically would not listen to advice. And it's very important, at least in our situation, that we have people that listen to our advice because we're not we're not just throwing money at something and saying, well, it sounds like a good idea. It looks like a good person. And I hope it works. I mean, we really, really get into helping the individuals. And if, they, if they're not willing to listen, if they're not open, if they don't recognize where they are and where their markets are, if they lack uh, self-awareness, it's a problem. I, it's not going to be successful. So I think that's, we spend an awful lot of time with that. When it's a more complicated product, for example, a uh, medical device, it takes quite a bit of time to actually do the diligence on that. And so it's in those situations, it, it's still the individuals are important. I mean, you can, you come across people that are in charge of companies like that, that, that you don't really want to do business with, that you, you don't feel like you can trust completely. So the individual's personality is important. But again, it's different from the normal, you know, when you talk to a 30-year-old woman about what, what she wants wants to do and how she wants to do it, it's a totally different thing. It has more to do in that case, in the latter case, uh, with the personality. Yeah. I mean, I think you said a number of excellent points. What I find interesting is almost this balance of a person that should have maybe deep knowledge for the industry vertical that they're headed into, but at the same time, also be aware and maybe have a bit of a growth mindset in knowing what you don't know. And you know, be open for advice and, you know, other opinions, which I think is tremendously important. So when you started Unorthodox, how did you decide growing your team and think about that construction? Well, I started with an advantage there because the uh, private equity firm that purchased uh, Big S Fans allowed me to carve out a number of people that uh, were working at the company. They were people that they did not see as being important to either the top or the bottom line. And amazingly enough, they were the brightest people that were working at the company, which is, tells you a little bit, I think, about private equity and their understanding of business. But there were 11 of us. There were several engineers, mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, electronics engineer, software. Also, people that had opened offices around the world. There were some analytic people. It was just a great way to start a team. And since I it, I had the luxury, and I realized this is quite a luxury, that 
I had the luxury of having the financial wherewithal to do what I wanted to do and hiring 10 intelligent, successful people is, you know, it's costly, but I was able to do that. And I think that sort of set, set the stage, I think, for unorthodox ventures. No, that's really helpful. I remember talking with David from your team about how everyone at unorthodox has been previously an operator. When you think about value add and the companies that you invest in, I would love to just hear more about how you think about Unorthodox's positioning and maybe some of the ways that Unorthodox can be helpful for founders? Well, we have, I'll just take one example because I think it's the easiest way to approach that question. And that is we invested uh, with a woman in a company that we thought she had a great idea. She had just started the company and really had very little of anything. And she had quite an interesting background, but nothing, none of it had to do with business. But she's she's an interesting, very intelligent, very curious individual. And she put in front of us a, um, no, not so much of a business plan, but, you know, here's the money I need and here's what I need to spend it on. And so we said, this looks good because we like the individual, we like the product, and we invested. We invested $800,000 to start with. And what we did was we set up a team because we call this, this is our actually fucking help uh, model, is we set up a team in the in the investment uh, firm where we had, we hired a more or less a shadow COO and we had at his beck and call all the other people, the engineers, the um, product development people, the marketing people, the sales people, the, the web people. We had all of those people at his disposal. And basically, he set up a company from scratch or almost from scratch. And so that's what our partner used the money for. Obviously, some of it we didn't charge for what we did ourselves because that was part of the investment. But we did curate and help her find the marketing firm, find the logistics firms, and so on and so forth. And we got to the stage where we said, okay, this is where we are. What she wanted to do and wants to do is go retail and do various other things and expand internationally. And so we built a business plan that that encompassed that. Because again, she's a very intelligent person. But again, she's never done anything like this. And this is what we've done for a living for years. And we said, what we're trying to do here is we, one, want to make sure that she maintains majority, if that's at all possible, we'll do everything we can to maintain that. Because that to me is a big deal that the entrepreneur owned the majority of their business. And secondly, that we're driving towards break even, because if you're not looking at break even from a business point of view, you're looking at raising more money, which means you're looking at the founder diluting her interests, and you're well on the way to a founder that has minority interest in, in her business. And so that's where we are with that. I think it's a very, very hands-on approach. We do not like normally to invest money where we can't add value. And I think the, the company Companies that we talk to, then we invest in, they recognize this. It's not, you know, if you needed to fill out a round that you'd call us up. I mean, we've got plenty of money, but we're not interested in being dumb money. We just, it's not interesting. It's not exciting. You don't get to help people. It's not our game. So we're a little bit different, I think, from the standard VC in that regard, because most VCs honestly are bankers. They're investment people. They know jack about business. They've never started a business themselves. They've never run a business of any size. And uh, we're a little bit different in that regard. Got it. I mean, what's interesting about that story is it feels like you took 
in that example, her creativity and curiosity, but then you all turned that and the insight that she had and the belief that she had, and you turned that into a business, which is really inspiring, to be honest, and really cool. Well, I wouldn't say we turned it into a business. I would say that we filled, and it's more important because I think this is this is more to the point, that we filled the spaces that she couldn't fill. And I think that having been in the same position that she was in and that she is in, I've been there. Everybody thinks money is the answer to everything, and it's simply not. And I think what a lot of the, well, I know what a lot of the people that come to us, founders come to us with is, I need some help. I need somebody to help me do this or that or the other, or I just need to use the model to build my business. And it's that we help them with what they, and they recognize this. I mean, again, as I said, you need to have people that recognize that are self-aware enough to recognize, hey, I've not done something like this. I'm interested. I'm interested in listening to you guys. You have to have that sort of person. But then again, you have to you have to know how to do that sort of thing. And at the end of the day, it's their business and not our business. And in essence, we work for them. And I don't know, it's a different approach, but I think that it helps entrepreneurs. And at the end of the day, I have zero, I have very little interest. I mean, you know, you want to make money, I suppose. I mean, my guys, they're all invested in the company and they want it to be profitable. But at the end of the day, I think you get so much more out of helping somebody and building something that, you know, that you had a hand in that's more important than, you know, just looking at it. Well, you know, here's my internal rate of return. This is what I need to make. This is what we're like. That's just, I'm not that interested. I guess you might, <laughs> I think I'm interested in business, but I might not really be that interested in business, but it's the helping and it's the intellectual challenge of doing that sort of thing, which is cool. I think it's very cool. And when you can work with other people and help them do that, I don't know. It's cool. It's, it's the best. I agree. I mean, that's absolutely in terms of just being in a place of help. One thing that also struck me too in speaking with you, it seems like you have a focus on, all right, how do we get to break even? How do we get to maybe profitability from the very beginning where I've had on investors that, and typically more on the technology side, I would say that that profitability is more of a talk later down the road, so to speak, rather than early on. How do you think about this balancing act between profitability and growth? Well, and again, I, maybe I'm not really a business. Maybe that's not my love, I, though I, I don't know that that's true. But I, I think that we're more engaged and we were at the fan company. We were more engaged in growth and in building into the markets and in controlling a market than we were profitability. Now, at the end of the day, you have to be profitable. I mean, you do, because otherwise you're just on, you know, on the investor teat and that's all you're you're ever going to be and you're going to wind up working for somebody else. And you don't want to do that as, a, as an entrepreneur. So I think that that has to, you have to be able to make enough money to exist. I mean, you have to pay your employees, you have to do all of these things, buy the products, buy the supplies. And so that's ground zero. I did not ever concentrate on making money. I always told the gals and guys that we had to make money to stay in business, but we weren't in business to make money, which may sound sort of silly. But I think that if you concentrate on growth and you concentrate on brand, you can build a company that, one, if you're interested in being acquired, it's much more attractive. It makes the company much more attractive and much more valuable. With the fan company where we actually profited in the end was not so much by how much money we made at the end of every year because... 
I mean, we made money, but we didn't. I mean, it wasn't a big deal. And we paid people very well, and we bonused people, and we did all sorts of things. It wasn't a big deal to, I mean, it was more of a, it's hard to have a lifestyle business that we have over a thousand people. But I mean, the business itself was entity within itself was interesting and was worth growing. At the end of the day, we grew the brand to the extent that was very interesting to potential acquirers. That's where the value was. The value was within the business. It was not how much money we made at the end of every year. So I guess I wouldn't say ambivalent. I'm more in tune with people that are looking at growing a long-term, that are looking at a long-term proposition. And that involves building brand. And I think brand in the long run is more important than making money in the short run. Totally. I absolutely agree. And I know that we touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to dive a little deeper. The one thing I know about family offices, as Will McClellan told me previously, was the one thing about family office that you know is every family office is different. But what's maybe one of the differences, if an entrepreneur is thinking about raising money from a family office versus a VC fund, what are maybe some of the differences in terms of the dynamic or maybe just thoughts in terms of what they should be thinking about? Well, I think that, I mean, we sometimes call ourselves a family office. And the reason we do that is that we don't have a fund because all the money is coming from one place. And what that means that that we haven't collected money from, you know, 100 people and that we haven't told them we're only going to invest in high tech or we're only going to invest in uh, CPG or this, that or the other. Or we're going to suggest that we're going to have a certain rate of return. There's nothing like that. I mean, it's, you know, or we're going to stay in the business for five years and we're going to exit. There's nothing like that because we don't answer to anybody. We answer to ourselves alone. To say that all family offices are like that, I don't know that. I think that it's more likely that family offices are like that simply because it's a very limited number of investors normally. Our one investor are, you know, a small number of of investors. I, I guess when you look at VCs, it's a meat market. It really is. Now, it happens to be at the time, there's a lot of money. Uh, in that market, there's a whole lot of money out there. But you're just one of a multitude. If you're looking from an entrepreneur's perspective, you're one of a multitude and they have a lot of other investments and they pay very little attention specifically to your business. The fewer investors you have now, and I say this, we've come across situations where, and this is sad, 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 where one individual invests a lot of money and they wind up owning ridiculous amounts of the business. I mean, we talked to somebody the other day that, I mean, these guys, they were putting in the, or this one guy was putting in an investment and he was going to own it. I don't know, over 50%. We talked to another one woman with one investor. The investor owned 82% of it. And it's like, what the hell are you doing with something like that? You want to be very, very careful of that sort of thing. I think that's more maybe important than the family office versus the VC type. And, And what that comes down to is you simply cannot, you have to know as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, if you're looking, if you think you need money, you better figure that stuff out and you better know how you're going to spend it, why you need it, where you're going to spend it and how to spend it. I know that when I started a business, if somebody had given me a million bucks, I would have promptly wasted it. I mean, I would have wasted it thinking 
thinking that I knew what the hell I was doing, but it would have been a waste. And you have to be very careful with that because it's terrible if you can't get the help. It's terrible. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And people giving you money, they expect something of it. And if they cannot offer you any advice, and I would suggest that when you do this, you would talk to, you would say, okay, fine, Mr. VC, that's very interesting. And they all have the same spiel. Everybody has the same spiel that they're going to help you do this and do that. That sounds great. Let me talk to a couple of your investments. Normally, well, typically that would dissuade you from working with the individual VCs. But I think that that's a very, very important point. And that sort of is where that whole family office versus VC, it comes from the more attention that a company is able to spend or uh, the more attention they're able to give you, the better off you're going to be. If they can answer the questions for you. They have to be able to help. It's not as easy as it looks and it would help to have help. If I had it to start again, knowing what I knew, not what I know, it would have been the greatest thing in the world to find somebody like us that would say, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to have these plans. You need to think about it this way. You need to have product manager. Let's get this person in. Let's do this, that, and the other, and try to avoid spending a lot of money right up front. So I hope that answers that. Yeah, I think that's really helpful in terms of maybe some of the differences too. And and I think on that subject as well, when it comes to talking about a VC's portfolio company or really any portfolio company that if you are engaged with an investor and the investor's interested and you're thinking about a partnership, it's also important to talk to companies that they previously invested in where it didn't have a strong result and it didn't go their way. And, and how you're going to have to, you're going to have to look hard for those because they're sure as shit not going to tell you where they are. <laughs> I mean, they're just not going to do that. But again, I, I think the important aspect with this is you have to look for partners. And I mean, partners, I mean, if, if we were going to partner, I'm adding, I'm bringing something to the party, you're bringing something to the party, and it has to be more than money. Money just kicks the can down the road. It really, really does. I know that it's very exciting when you have an idea and or you have a small business and you come to somebody and they say, oh my gosh, you know, your business is worth $5 million or $10 million or whatever the hell it is. And I'm going to give you you know, $2 million to help you along with that. It's very, very flattering, very flattering. And it's understandable people would be taken with that. But I think you have to calm yourself down and look at it and say, there's one, there's more money out there than anybody can spend. And that's a fact. Secondly, you are looking not just for money. Money is part of it. I mean, it's like, it's like sex and marriage. I mean, it's important. It's not everything. If you just married for sex, you're going to have problems, Ace. I mean, you just will. And that's the same thing that applies with, with this. You're looking for somebody that can partner with you that's actually going to help you. And that's important. And it's not something that you can't just you wouldn't hire somebody just having somebody come in the office and say, oh, yeah, no, I like the way they look. Yeah, OK, come on board. I, you have to do your diligence. And I think a lot of small companies, startups, they don't know enough to do the diligence and they should because it's a. I talk to a lot of people. We talk to a whole lot of people and there's a lot of people that are very upset with the way that they were treated by their investors, by the VC firms. And I'm not saying that every single one of those would have been a successful business business, but they certainly cannot be a successful business, not the way it was structured. It just can't be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to also talk about, since you don't focus on a particular sector, how do you approach even just uh, different sectors and portfolio construction? Well, 
We don't, actually. I thought that was funny, portfolio construction. How cute. We just, Seriously, what we look for is we look for, for smart people, curious people, people that, that have an idea, that have a vision. And unless now you could have those things, and, and some people do, and have a horrible business. I mean, a horrible business plan, a horrible idea for a business, a terrible product. And that would be a problem. But I don't care where you're coming from. The only thing I don't like, and I say this, that we don't invest in a lot of SaaS, but we still invest in software. Not a lot. That's not our focus. There's an awful lot of it out there, but typically steer away from it just because there's an awful lot of it out there and it's not unless it relates to something real we have a difficult we're not interested in it i'm just not and what i find interesting about that though is a lot of the SaaS companies are run by men and men are okay i guess but as business partners normally they're lacking we invest in a lot of women-owned companies actually that's the majority what we invest in it has nothing to do with somebody saying oh let's invest in women because that's not the, what we do, but it's just that the women have a tendency to think longer term and they think more in terms of disrupting markets than guys. And guys always think about making money. And that's interesting. There's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. But the women are not narrowly focused as that. And they're trying to shift paradigms. And that's more interesting. And um, it's just the way it's worked out. It's not something we planned on, but it's just something I noticed that that's, I think is fascinating. That is interesting. So I guess in your experience, what you've noticed just from a lot of meetings and, and of course, a lot of investing in both, you know, men led companies and women led companies, it seems like women are much more, would you say, maybe focused on the actual vision or what the actual market disruption would be as opposed to the guy? Of course, we're speaking very generally here, but that's pretty interesting. What's one thing you would change about the fundraising process? I like it just as it is, because what you have is you have a bunch of knuckleheads going off and they're all doing the same goddamn thing. And that suits me just fine. We are very, very aggressive in finding companies. I mean, we go out and find them ourselves. We're more hunter-based than gatherer-based, I suppose. Most of these VCs, again, because they're bankers, I, what do they know about business? And they wait for deals to come to them. And we're when we see something, uh, if you had a company that we said, oh, that's an interesting product. That's How do they do that? What are they doing? Could we help them, we just call them on the phone. And, you know, and, and we talk to a lot of people that way. And sometimes something clicks. And sometimes they say, Hey, it's great. We love you, but we don't need any money. We don't need any help. And it's like, okay, that's cool. Best of luck. Because the way I look at things, the best thing in the world, well, and this is only because I did it, I guess, is if you can bootstrap it, because then at the end of the day, it's yours. I mean, you own it. it nobody's telling you what to do. You sure as heck don't work for anybody. You work for yourself. And that's a big deal. And that I think drives or should drive a lot of entrepreneurs and starting business owners. I mean, the reason that I did this is because I didn't want to work with anybody else for anybody else. I like you have to work with a lot of people. You have to be very collaborative, but you don't have to work for somebody. And that's to be avoided in my way of thinking. So I like just the way it is. Those guys can go throw their money around however they want. it. No big deal. Okay. Well, I also like that term you're much more of a hunter than gather. And what's your research process and also your team's research process in terms of analyzing ideas and already seeing companies in market and saying, ooh, like, 
like that could be an interesting one to invest in. Like what's that dynamic like? Sure. Well, everybody here is always has their eyes open and there are a few people that are, are very intent on calling. So if we, let's, for example, let's say you said, Hey, Carrie, I like this company. It looks interesting. What do you think? I would personally look at it and say, yeah, maybe, maybe, okay, let's get engaged. And then I would give it to one of the people here and they would call and they would see, okay, fine, this is interesting, they're interesting, I like it, and then they fill out a form. And then it goes to a meeting that we have once a week and we decide, yes, it looks interesting, no, it doesn't. And if it looks interesting, we kick it into basically diligence and it goes through a first round where uh, some of the people and there, we have a couple of interns that help us with this, look at it, write up a, a couple of page report on the company and the market. It's pitched again. If it's accepted, then we go into due diligence, which means that, you know, we sign all the NDAs, we do all of that. We look at the data rooms. I mean, it's the it's the full grind. Normally, if we're deadly serious about it, then it goes into full diligence and that may take a month or six weeks. I mean, it goes through several layers. There's an awful lot of companies that have potential, but not many companies that we actually are going to spend a couple of months on looking into. So in this process, how many companies are actually actively fundraising when you reach out to them? (laughs) I would say maybe 30%. Wow, that's cool. That's cool. Actually, it's a very good question because most people would not ask that. But uh, that's interesting, but most of them aren't. I mean, because again, what we're doing is it's a partnership and it's we're putting together what we know. And if it can match with what the potential partner needs and we all agree to that, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're looking for money. As a matter of fact, it's sort of like hiring people. Normally, you want to hire somebody that's got a job. I mean, you don't want to hire somebody. Not that you wouldn't. And gosh knows we've all hired people and we've all been unemployed. And so it's a good thing that you hire unemployed people. But for uh, certain positions, you want somebody that's employed, that's doing their job that hasn't been uh, basically discarded by another firm. Got it. Got it. Yeah, no, it's really interesting just hearing how you source and how you find deals, but not all the founders are actually actively fundraising at that moment where you actually might consider or might actually develop a partnership. So that's pretty interesting too. What's your most recent investment? You know, it's interesting. When we started, we made more investments faster, but I think we were making mistakes. We just didn't know it. This last year has been interesting, but it's been many fewer. And I don't know if it's a COVID thing. And it may be because you can do an awful lot uh, via Zoom. But honestly, you know, if I was going to give you three million bucks, I'd want to see you. I mean, we got to look each other in the eye because that's a big deal. I think our last investment was Dripstick, which is uh, Awkward Essentials. And it was the woman I was talking about earlier. And I think it was very interesting. But again, I think a very good partnership for both of us. And it has to do with after-sex cleanup from a woman's perspective. And I always saw it as a problem. I never thought about it in great detail because as she says, I don't have a vagina, so, and I don't. But I thought she had an interesting take on it and an interesting approach to it. And again, very intelligent person. So yeah, that's the last investment that we made. No, that's awesome. I remember actually also talking with David about this when I spoke with him, I think a couple months ago. So yeah, it looks like a really fascinating company. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? 
Well, I actually, I read a lot of history. And so I would say, I don't know, anything I've read, I think I've read just about everything that Churchill wrote and anybody that wrote about Churchill, I've read that book. And I think that it it was a very interesting individual. And again, somebody that I hadn't thought about in these terms before, but somebody that pivoted an awful lot throughout his life that had his ups and downs. I mean, he was recognized relatively late or positively recognized relatively late in his life. But I think an all around good character, more or less. But anyway, so that's what I'd like to read. In terms of business books, I don't read a lot of business books because most business books are written by people that didn't start or run businesses. One that I did think was interesting that I bought for everybody that was on my staff was a Blue Ocean Strategy, which is basically indicated to me that other people thought about things the way we were thinking about things, which is you're not interested in the red oceans where, I mean, you know, it's it's chummy, where there's a lot of blood, where there's a lot of competition. What is more interesting are blue oceans or oceans that are, are waters that are patrolled by ideas that not a lot of other people have. I mean, it's, it's taking the path less trodden. And it's because that's the only way, and I know this may sound terrible, but when you're in business... And when you're thinking that way, you have to think this way. It's the only way you can have a monopoly. And you can't have a monopoly for long, but if you have a product that nobody else has brought to market, that nobody else has thought of, and you can successfully bring it to market, you're going to have a monopoly. And that is the best place to be in business. Now, as soon as you have a monopoly, the next thing that happens is you don't have a monopoly because you attract a hell of a lot of attention. But it's one of those things. It's the apex of the flight. I mean, it is the highest point. And it means that you've done something that other people haven't done. So I like that book. Absolutely. I think that's something that we talk about a lot on this show is TAM and the value of TAM, for example. And, you know, I've had a number of VCs that say, you know, this is something that VCs and investors can get notoriously wrong because they only look at the market now when, you know, a lot of the markets maybe they should be or the real opportunities that exist are in developing markets that markets that are actually pretty small but might have a very high growth rate or just look attractive or you might just think that the world is going in that direction so no that's helpful what's the best piece of advice that you've received i don't know get off my lawn i (laughs) Uh, the best piece of advice are that i could give or receive okay so my first question to you that you've received and my second was going to be advice for founders best Oh, well, okay. My mother told me repeatedly that I was nothing special. So I think that sounds terrible, but it wasn't because, you know, I mean, you think you're different. You think you're special. Well, you are a little bit, but you're not that special. And so I think that's fine. That's good advice. In terms of giving advice, I would suggest that I think what's most important in business is to continually try to get feedback from your customers, from your suppliers, from everybody and anything. Because as I think I mentioned earlier, a lot of doing it right, of getting it right, is pivoting. It just is. You just, you cannot possibly know what, you don't know what you don't know. And it's interesting. You can learn an awful lot if you pay attention, but you've got to be able to incorporate that and 
and say, okay, fine, I've learned that and I'm going to change. And you've got to continually work to find what you're doing wrong. And what I think is interesting about a lot of business people, young business people now, is that they're accustomed to getting pats on the back. I mean, you know, oh, I've got so many likes or nobody ever tells me, all of my customers are telling me everything is great. They love it. Yep, yep, yep. And I always say, that's fine. So who cares? I mean, that's nice, but who cares? What you really want to know is you want to know what you're doing wrong. You want somebody to tell you that I liked everything except for I didn't like the packaging. It's hard to get into, or I didn't like the product because, you know, I didn't know what to do with it after I used it. I this, that, and the other. That's the only thing, the only type of information you can use to make yourself better. If you think you're doing it right every time, all the time, I mean, you're dead. I mean, or you're not born yet. I mean, that's just, it never happens. And you've got to be willing to poke, poke, poke your customers, is who I'm thinking about for the most part, poke them until they tell you what they don't like, because that's useful information. And a lot of people don't do it. No, that's helpful. That's helpful. I mean, it's also kind of what, which has become a bit of a buzzword now, but like customer centric companies should actually do, right? Always continually look to feedback and then iterating on the product. So now that's really helpful. Well, Carrie, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate your time as well. And there you have it. It was so great learning from Carrie and what it truly means to be a contrarian investor. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Thank you.